weekly Raw and SmackDown watcher, but I tune in for the big pay-per-views, and I don't ever miss a WrestleMania. And WrestleMania was yesterday the showcase of the Immortals, the ultimate thrill ride, uh, and it was a pretty darn entertaining show, I have to say. Uh, the WrestleMania usually delivers, and this year I think delivered better than most. And it got me thinking about video games, and why is it that there really has never been a great wrestling video game. Some of you may argue uh, there have certainly been a whole bunch of wrestling video games. For years, THQ, before they went bankrupt and dissolved, uh, would put out a new wrestling game every single year. Uh, they were you know, very successful wrestling games on the GameCube and in the first PlayStation and PlayStation 2 eras. And a lot of people played those games. Uh, I never really got into them. I never found the the fundamental fun of wrestling to be conveyed particularly well in a game. I'd have to say probably my favorite wrestling game of all time is the old stand-up arcade uh, WWF game with the big boss man and everybody. I mean, it's a chaotic, simplistic game that was uh, you know fun for its time just because you could play as the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan and see those characters in all of their pixelated glory. Uh, but since then, you know, all of the 3D versions, uh, 3D graphics versions of, uh, you know, WCW, WWE games, they never clicked for me. And I've been trying to figure out why that is and why, what I would do if I was going to set out to make a great wrestling video game. And I think a lot of it comes down to what you're trying to accomplish in a wrestling video game and how hard it is to present that to a player. I think, unfortunately, a lot of these games use stamina meters and uh, mechanics that convey when you are too tired to be able to kick out of a account. So, you know, you're trying to whittle your the opponent down and knock them around and lower their meter or lower their ability to resist when you when you try to cover them for a three count. And I just don't think there's anything particularly fun about a battle of attrition like that. There's nothing particularly fun about slamming my finger on a button over and over and over again, but the game deciding that, no, now is the time when I can't kick out of the three count. I think there's got to be a better way to provide a victory condition in these games. And I think there's got to be a better way to uh, decide, you know, who's in control because wrestling is or professional wrestling is really a series of moments of control. One character is throwing another character to the ropes or putting them in a hold or hoisting them over their head in a suplex. And if you're playing as the other player, it's not particularly fun to be out of control. It's not particularly fun to be in a position of not controlling the action. And the 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 problem there is how do you convey the moments of of inside the squared circle in a video game where I want to be able to push a button and have something happen. And for 
most of these games, the way that, that it works is if you're too low or if another player has you in a, in a, in a, in a controlled hold or moment, you pushing a button doesn't do anything. You can attempt to get out of it or counter, but if you don't, it doesn't and nothing happens. I'd like to see just a, a, taking these characters, these wrestling characters and their movesets and transitioning them into different kinds of games. I'd like to see a 2D Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat style game with The Undertaker and John Cena and Brock Lesnar and all of the WWE lineup. I think that would be a really fun game to see their movesets played out in 2D and just have a straight up health bar. When that health bar is zero, it automatically covers them. That's a KO, right? I think that would work really well. But I do not think the the fully three-dimensional grab a character, have them at, at your mercy, and try to you know execute a series of moves on them works. Maybe mini-games would work. Maybe a series of mini-games to determine who's in control might work. I think it's a very tough problem, and I want someone to figure it out because right now we're not really getting those games. Let me know if I'm missing anything. Let me know if I got something wrong. Hit me up with a call-in. Speaking of Collins, we're going to feature a few on today's episode. Uh, this one comes from Lynx. He's got a game to recommend, a game that I have not played, and I always love getting those. Hey, Jeff. Rob here. I have a video game recommendation. It's called Deceit. It's on Steam, and it's basically an FPS meets werewolf. So six people go in, but the hook is two are infected. Now, the infected people have, you know, a gene where they can transform into monsters. So you, everyone is kind of completing these objectives together to keep getting further and further. I believe there's three different stages because uh, when the after a minute, the lights will go off. The people that are infected have the option to transform and, you know, go into their monster form and, you know, take care of the other four non-infected. Um, and then when the lights come back on, you have to move to the next area. So it's kind of like, you know, you're using the in-game voice comms to make your, you know, case. If you're the infected, maybe you're lying about either, you know, you being infected or telling telling the group that somebody else that you know isn't infected is infected. So I think you would really dig this game because it has a lot of that social deduction in it. And, you know, I feel both sides are fairly... Awesome recommendation, Lynx. Uh, I checked this out on Steam, uh, Deceit. It's only 15 bucks. I might have to give this one a go. I certainly love, as you said, social deduction games. I'm a big fan of them on the tabletop. And I, I think they do work digitally as well. Certainly uh, Werewolves Within, the adaptation of Werewolf that um, was put out on VR headsets recently, is a whole bunch of fun. Uh, just sitting around talking to people over comms, having your your gestures mapped to an in-game avatar, and uh, trying to convince people you aren't the werewolf, accusing other people of being the werewolf. Uh, that's all really, really fun. Of course, you know tabletop versions of games like The Resistance do this really, really well. Uh, they're games about lying to your friends, and, you know, it's never fun to lie to your friends, although sometimes it's so fun to lie to your friends. <laughs> um, it's fun to deceive your friends. And uh, this one, uh, Deceit, max, mixing that with first-person shooter elements, uh, I think is a pretty clever idea. So I'm going to have to give this one a shot. Really appreciate the recommendation. Our next call-in comes from Josh, who wants to talk about uh, Bomberman on Nintendo Switch. 
Hey Jeff, this is Josh with the World Map Podcast Network, and I wanted to get your thoughts on the Nintendo Switch launch year as well as Super Bomberman R. I don't know if you've played that game yet, but obviously the Nintendo Switch launch year is pretty sparse. I don't think it's doing much to get people outside of the hardest of the hardcore Nintendo fans to buy a Switch in the first year. And I was really hoping that some of these titles like Super Bomberman R might help to contribute to reasons to buy a Switch. But I played the game recently and I cannot believe it's a $50 game. The campaign is pretty weak. I, I think the N64 Bomberman games were way more fun and, and substantial. And the multiplayer is laggy. No one's playing it. I just didn't have fun with this game and I don't understand how it's $50 and not like a $15, $20 download. want to get your thoughts. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for calling, Josh. Uh, I have not tried uh, Bomberman on Switch. Bomberman wasn't one of those franchises that ever hooked me, although it does seem like something I would like, right? It, uh, it's got that fun turn-based element to it. Um, I, I, honestly, as I said last week, I've only played two games on Switch, Zelda and uh, Has Been Heroes. Uh, Has Been Heroes was a, was a pleasant surprise, but Switch has literally been my Zelda box, and I'm not regretting that. There isn't anything that's particularly compelling. I'm not drawn to play Bomberman or any of the other launch titles. Yeah, I'll be playing Mario if it comes out this year, and hopefully Nintendo has some more surprises in store. And if uh, we start getting indie titles day and date on Switch, I would love to, to do that. I think there are a whole bunch of great indie titles in the pipeline that would work amazingly on uh, a handheld system. There are so many games that I think uh, I would love to play on the go. But right now, it's just that Zelda. It's keep, I keep playing that Zelda and some uh, some has-been heroes peppered in. But uh, I'm, I'm bummed out to hear that you are a little disappointed with Bomberman. Our next call-in comes from Mike, who wants to talk about the Destiny 2 reveal trailer. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Mike. Uh, I'm hoping that it is more different stuff. Of course, that's just how stuff gets revealed these days, uh, especially these big titles. They have a roadmap to lay things out and show you uh, just little bits at a time so that it, it creates that long hype train, that building hype train that will crescendo on September 8th when it comes out. Uh, you know, you start with the logo, the fact that it's actually a thing, and then the next week you give us a cinematic trailer that doesn't really tell you anything about the game, but kind of gives sets some tone for the game. And then it sounds like in May we're going to get that uh, gameplay reveal, and that's really the meat and potatoes. That's really the part where uh, I will know whether or not I'm excited for this game in earnest. But I think the reveal trailer was pretty interesting, some humor, um... I guess a humoristic tone for this universe isn't bad. Uh, I, certainly the humor worked in the trailer. It was effectively written and, and entertaining to watch. But yeah, it's when, it's when we see the actual gameplay, if it's going to be just more of the same Destiny or it's going to be something new entirely, uh, some, something that brings some freshness to that world. Certainly they have the opportunity with that numbered sequel to do that. I'm crossing my fingers that that's what we'll see on May 18th. I think you're probably right there as well. But I know that there are a lot of Destiny fans that would be satisfied with more of the same. Uh, the uh, sort of Call of Duty approach. Give us just a new iteration of the multiplayer. Let us jump back in and earn new stuff. 
I can sympathize with that. There's nothing wrong with that per se. I just, uh, I want to see a new engine. I want to see a bigger, more vibrant world. I want to see more stuff to do in that world, a better narrative, lots more activities. Give me more activities in that universe. Give me more connection to the world around me rather than just jumping in with my buddies, shooting stuff and getting loot. That's what I'm hoping for. We'll see. We'll see as the, as the information continues to trickle. So I spent the morning playing some Heroes of the Storm. Um, man, that game. I, I just thought I'd talk about it. I'm streaming now uh, my morning sessions of Heroes of the Storm on Caffeine. If you want to follow me, caffeine.tv slash Jeff Kanata, always spelled with two N's and one T. Um, and it's fun. I've been having a good time with the, with the folks who come and hang out and uh, watch me play. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, not going to be your pro-level player. I'm not going to be pro-tier, but I'm passionate. I think I'm pretty knowledgeable. My skills uh, are improving over time. I'm uh, playing ranked. I'm in silver right now. If you're not familiar with how Heroes of the Storm works, uh, there, is, there are different tiers uh, of ranked. Uh, bronze, silver, gold, platinum, diamond, uh, master, grandmaster. I think that's how it works. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm in silver, so that's, that's, that's close to the bottom. Uh, I placed in silver one. Each, each of those big, uh, colored tiers has, uh, five ranks in it. So rank five is the lowest and rank one is the highest. Once you get past rank one, you move up into the next colored tier and rank five of that tier. So, uh, I've been trying to, you know, I've been trying to get up past, uh, silver one. I placed, you do placement games at the beginning of the season. You do 10 games, so they, the system kind of figures out where you are. I ended last season Silver 1. I placed this season Silver 1, <laughs> so no movement there. Um, but uh, I promptly uh, dropped a couple of ranks. Uh, it's, it was really, uh, really rough. Had some rough teams. The problem is, for me, and, and you know, you may be listening to this thinking, oh, those are just excuses, Jeff. This is just... Uh, you, everybody thinks they're better at these games than they really are. So maybe I really am just a, a silver player. Uh, I think I'm a little better than silver. I think that if I was dropped into gold or even, even platinum, I could hang with a team. I could, I could contribute. I could do smart things and I could, uh, keep up. But, uh, you know, I think the problem for me is that I started playing Heroes of the Storm. It really was my first MOBA that I took seriously. I mean, I, I dabbled in, La- in uh, Dota. I dabbled in League. I dabbled uh, in some other... I dabbled in Smite. I dabbled in um, what was the Battle for Middle Earth. The uh, That was really the first one that made me think, oh, I could, I could dig these games. But Heroes of the Storm, I'm such a Blizzard fanboy and really love their universes. The idea of playing a mashup of all their characters, characters that I'm already familiar with, characters that I already love, uh, that was very appealing to me. So I gave it a little more time, and my friends were playing it. And also because it was a brand new MOBA, I wasn't jumping into an established uh, community of League players or Dota players. I didn't feel overwhelmed by uh, all of the knowledge. I, I, you know, I got into the technical alpha of Heroes of the Storm, so I felt like I was kind of on the ground floor and I could learn along with everybody else. But the end result of that is that as I was learning, I was very bad. I was just learning how these games work. I was learning how not to die. I was learning positioning. I was learning the maps. I was learning what, how these games are played and what my role is to contribute to my team. And as I learned, I, I lost a lot of games. I lost a heck of a lot of games. And I didn't lose all those games necessarily in ranked. It took me a while to get to ranked. But uh, 
But your MMR, your uh, multiplayer matchmaking ranking, is uh, cobbled together behind the scenes as you play any games. And uh, as I lost a lot and as I was learning, my, skills, my skill level uh, wasn't where it is now. And it's still not, you know, I'm not pro, pro tier. That's, I'm not claiming to be amazing. I think I'm competent. Uh, but I wasn't competent when I started. And I think the game um, put me in a, in a group of players that are not competent. And because I'm not amazing, I can't transcend those other players single-handedly. I have four other people on my team. And uh, as much as I like to think that I can carry sometimes or I can contribute in a really meaningful way, uh, my skill set isn't so amazing that I can raise up four other players that are pretty mediocre. And, you know, so oftentimes if I have a good team, we win. If I have a team of quitters, (laughs) of people who get discouraged early on and lash out and uh, decide to start trolling and throwing the game or just you know, get mad at each other and stop concentrating on the game. It's an interesting experience playing Heroes of the Storm because it is as much about psychology as anything else. Maybe more. Maybe more about psychology. Because uh, winning is, uh, especially in this game, where you can come back at the last minute. I literally just played a game where I came back from 6% health, uh, 6% core health, and we won. So it's an interesting experience And I'm committed to getting better. Uh, I want to get better. I want to be that player that can carry my team. Uh, it's not an easy. It's not an easy task, and it and it can be very discouraging when other players on your team uh, get toxic. Get uh, and and hey, man, I'm guilty of that too. I I love loving things. I put out a positive vibe in the world. I say, you know, think about what you put out in the world, make it a better place. I believe all that stuff. But man, when a a player does a bunch of bonehead things or just it just ditches the team and goes out solo and, and clearly is the reason you're losing, it's hard not to criticize them. It's hard not to get a little salty and say, hey, man, where were you? What, what are you doing? What, what, what was that all about? And that just never helps. Uh, it's a hard lesson to learn that it never helps. And, and it is. It's all about psychology. It's all about maintaining a positive winning attitude and realizing that you can come back at any time. And, you know, Sometimes you get a team where, yeah, in the draft, when you're drafting your, your heroes, your composition is not ideal. You, people are stubborn. People will pick characters that don't make sense for the map and don't make sense for the team composition. And it can be very discouraging to just head into a, head into a game right at the beginning. You're about to sit down for a half an hour of game, and you know you are in, in – you know, you are in a not the in the power position. You are you have set yourself up for a loss, and you have to overcome that. You you put a speed bump in front of you, saying, "Hey, we didn't smartly draft, so we have to overcome that." It's not easy to do, and I think you know a lot of people talk about Heroes of the Storm as being the beginner MOBA. It certainly was the beginner MOBA for me, and the the fact that there isn't individual XP that you have group team XP. And that there are not, uh, there's not a store to buy items. People think that that is a simplified game. I would respond to that by saying that the number of maps in Heroes of the Storm and the different mechanics on each of the maps it, it counters that and makes it a much more complex game than people might not might first uh, imagine. the 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 hook of Heroes of the Storm is each map you play has a unique 
thing. And people think, oh, it's a gimmick. But man, no, it really requires a large amount of game IQ to understand what heroes are effective on which maps. It's not enough to just be good at a hero. It's not enough to just get really skilled at a tank and a healer and a DPS so that you have the ability to fit the correct role for your team as necessity dictates. It's not That's not enough. You also have to be good at heroes that are good for that map. You have to understand what the requirements for each individual map in the game are and and be able to adapt your strategy and the entire team's strategy to that map because not every tool is right for every job. And I think that's how it really differentiates itself from MOBAs like League and Dota. You you have to have a large breadth of game IQ. You have to understand where you're needed and what your your part in the team is. And I think, especially in the lower leagues that I'm sort of trapped in, that is sorely lacking. People don't grasp those concepts. People haven't put in the time, don't understand what the maps really require. And, I, you know, like I said, I'm not... Um, I'm not claiming to be an expert. I think I'm closer to expert than I am to novice, but uh, I'm still learning a lot. And I think that's the magic of these kinds of games is there is an infinite amount of depth to be learned and new heroes are being added to the game all the time. New metas are taking over. So new strategies are working and the game is constantly in flux. Even old established heroes that have been around a long time get big reworks, get big talent changes and Blizzard is constantly throwing the meta in, in, into uh, into chaos. People, you know, uh, heroes are ascending or descending uh, based on nerfs or buffs, and that to me is really exciting. Uh, I used to think that nerfs and buffs were all about trying to find perfect balance, and once they found perfect balance, the game would be good. But I don't think that's really what it is. What it really is is a constant flowing game that nothing is ever going to be perfectly balanced, but it's fun to be riding that wave of, oh my gosh, now Kerrigan is amazing. Oh my gosh, now Kerrigan is not great. Oh my gosh, now Diablo is a cool tank to play. Oh my gosh, now he's not. It, it is, it's a fun, uh, constantly shifting landscape that makes playing the game and keeping up with the game uh, uh, never dull. And that's why I can't stop playing it, despite the psychological aspects. Drawn to Death is the new game from game designer David Jaffe and his uh, production studio that has maybe the coolest name in all of video game development houses, uh, the Bartlett Jones Supernatural Detective Agency. And you know David Jaffe from uh, Twisted Metal and God of War. He created those games, those visceral, violent experiences. And Drawn to Death certainly is no exception. It is a visceral, violent game, but the aesthetic is very, very different. Uh, this is a disaffected teenage boy's notebook come to life. So if you imagine that kid who sat in the back of the class and carved Slayer into his desk with a knife, that's <laughs> that's the mind in which this game takes place. Uh, in fact... The game starts in a really, really clever way. It starts with full motion video. Full motion video, FMV, we hate that in video games. Well, it's just a, it's a wonderful, cool introductory uh, moment where you're in the POV of a kid sitting in the back of, the, of a boring class and you look down and you see the notebook and then the camera zooms in on that notebook and that's the interface 
for the beginning of the game. And everything looks like those, uh, you know, black and blue pen, ink pen, uh, you know, Bic pen drawings that you might have on a, on a lined uh, composition notebook. It's all, you know, it's all over-the-top uh, Trogdor-style <laughs> craziness. It's, you know, it's uh, naked ladies with big boobies and uh, winged monsters and fire-breathing dragons and big guns and profanity. Uh, it's an aesthetic that uh, I admire even if I don't particularly like it anymore. I mean, I, I grew out of that phase. You know, I was listening to Metallica and stuff uh, in high school, but... Uh, you know the the disaffected uh, angsty teen is not exactly a point of view that's missing from video games it certainly feels a little redundant at this point but the style and panache that this game brings to bear in in expressing that aesthetic is pretty impressive i mean the the commitment to just being in your face being a giant middle finger all the time uh you know insulting the player you know, when you kill people in the game, you can – gifts come up, little animated moments that are making fun of them. I mean it is offensive and, and kind of revels in its offensiveness and revels in that like, you know, I'm 14, I'm pissed off, I listen to heavy metal and I just, you know, want the world to burn. Um, and the game itself is an arena multiplayer shooter, which – is also something that doesn't particularly interest me, but uh, certainly this is uh, Jaffe going back to his twisted metal roots and finding a very fast-paced, uh, action-packed shooter and and really, you know, packing it to the gills with with cool stuff to do. There are a number of different hero characters in the game that you can select from the main screen, and each of them has a different loadout, a different set of unique skills that they can bring to bear to slaughter people, to create carnage, to you know paint the walls of the of the game with blood. Uh, you have big jumping abilities. You can move around these multi level arenas very quickly and and uh, easily. And the game is kinetic and fast-paced. And it seems like more and more people are jumping into this arena shooter pond. I mean, with the success of Overwatch, we're getting uh, numerous of these, you know, bringing back an old-school Unreal Tournament-style shooter. And certainly Drawn to Death wants to do that too. I think the unique thing here is the look and feel. And if you're into that aesthetic, if you think it's funny and fun... Uh, I certainly think that this is done in a way that is, uh, you know, it goes all the way. It it goes to 11 (laughs) for sure uh, with that aesthetic. For me, it was a bit of a a, a bit of a turnoff just to sort of um, immature adolescent point of view. I'm just kind of over that. But I admire the game for mining so much humor and so much fun from that place and really the the visuals are awesome as a shooter you know i think it's it's competent uh i don't think it's particularly special but i do think that uh if you should give it a shot i mean it's free all month long all april on playstation plus so if you're a playstation plus member no reason not to check it out and it might give you a chuckle and you might get hooked more than i was if you like that kind of heavy metal the movie aesthetic The people at HTC are calling today Vive Day because one year ago today, April 5th, 2016, the Vive was released. Uh, It wasn't the first 
virtual reality goggles to hit the hit the market. Oculus had come out uh, March 28th. But uh, I think it's interesting that here we are a year later. It's, I think, worthwhile to look back and see where virtual reality is sitting right now. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that probably don't feel that virtual reality has arrived. Um, I'm certainly not one of them. I use my headsets daily. Uh, I love the experiences that you can get only inside the headsets. And the Vive specifically uh, offering room scale, I think is an, an incredible experience to be able to walk around inside the environment, go 360. Uh, I did get a third camera for my Oculus, so I'm able to do that with my Oculus as well. But uh, the fact that Vive stuck to their guns and, or that HTC, I should say, stuck to their guns and created the Vive experience uh, natively as a motion-tracked, hand, hand presence, fully room scale experience. I think uh, kudos to them because I think those are the experiences that are most uh, amazing in virtual reality and the ones that we want to have most often. So I think them pushing that forward, I think that the Oculus had come out to the market uh, by itself with just the two cameras and simply controller based. I'm not so sure touch would have launched uh, with uh, as much gusto and with as much, uh, you know, as soon as it did. So where are we a year later? Uh, I still think there's a lot of people waiting for that must-play experience in virtual reality. I'm certainly hoping that Valve can can continue to support the HTC Vive in some big ways with some software. We've heard rumblings from Gabe Newell in interviews saying that they have no fewer than three big AAA full games in development at Valve for the HTC Vive. I think that is great. Certainly the lab... Uh, is one of the best experiences still a year later. Uh, it was a launch title. It was the launch title for the HTC Vive. And uh, certainly a year later, it's still one of the most impressive visually and some of the most fun uh, mini games that you can find on, on Vive. I think uh, one of the big things moving forward in this next calendar year that is going to be exciting to see for HTC Vive is the upcoming release of the new Headstrap replacement. I think uh, HTC, unfortunately, did not take enough care in making a comfortable experience for their headset. And uh, you see with uh, Oculus, and in particular, the PlayStation VR headset, how much comfort can add, can, can just make playing long stretches of VR much more pleasant and make taking on, uh, putting on and taking off the headset uh, much easier. And you want to do that. If, you know, if it takes a whole rigmarole to get into virtual reality, it's not something that you want to do as often. And I find myself reaching for my Oculus more often just because it's so much easier to put on and take off. And I'm very excited about the new head, the new head strap replacement. Uh, even though it's, it's not cheap, it's going to be $100. And, and it really should have been how the Vive was originally sold. But it, I've, having tried it at events now, I can tell you it is a night and day difference. I'm very excited about that. And of course, for this one-year anniversary, they have lowered the price for HTC Vive $100. So I think that's hopefully going to help people uh, take the plunge a little more. Uh, certainly, hardware continues to advance, and the, the kind of rig you need to play these experiences is becoming more and more affordable. Uh, we are seeing you know these new video cards that are coming out that are really going to be uh, leveraged in VR much more effectively. 
And uh, we're still looking for those great games, but there are so many cool experiences, and particularly on Vive, where the community is driving so much of the innovation. Oculus, I think Oculus Studios and Facebook are driving a lot of the innovation there on their, you know, on their platform. But with Vive, you're seeing people putting out these cool, like one person putting out a game like, for example, Vanishing Realms, which is still one of the coolest games available on Vive, uh, made by one person, or Smashbox Arena, or, you know, so many of these cool room-scale games that show what the the technology can do uh, are being innovated by, by just a few people in their garage. I'm hoping that this calendar year, we're going to see some more of those robust, longer experiences that prove VR is here to stay. But I'm still excited, and I think the future of VR is very bright indeed. Big news early this morning, there was a 6 a.m. Pacific Time reveal of the tech specs for Microsoft's upcoming upgrade to the Xbox One, uh, which is now known as Project Scorpio. We all expect that name to change come E3 when the system is officially unveiled. But uh, for now, we're getting technical details. Digital Foundry got uh, an exclusive report on what the system actually will be able to do. All of the important stuff, all the things that we as gamers are looking to find out, we as consumers are looking to find out, still remain unrevealed. That's probably going to happen at the big Microsoft press conference at E3. Things like price, things like uh, what games are going to be available on it, what it's going to look like, how you're going to get your hands on it, what it's actually going to be able to do in a very real sense. All of that stuff, uh, we don't know. We still don't know. But it is still pretty exciting to hear uh, how beefy this system is going to be. Microsoft set out to, to deliver the most powerful console that has ever been, been released. And it sounds like they're delivering on that. They're delivering on their six teraflops of processing power that they, um, that they said they were shooting for last E3. And um, evidently, they have done it. Uh, this is going to be a console that is more powerful than PlayStation Pro, that will be able to uh, play games at 4K resolutions natively. Uh, it's got a whole bunch of, of memory bandwidth. We're talking 326 gigabytes of memory bandwidth. That's up from PlayStation 4's 218. There's a lot of tech stuff. There's a lot of uh, real you know, dense hardware comparison that you can dive into. I'm not going to really get into a lot of the specs, you know, eight cores and clocked at 2.3 gigahertz. All that stuff, you know, you're welcome to look that up yourself. I think the more pertinent information here is, yes, they seem to be able to hit the specs that they shot for, so they did not overpromise there. I think that's that's good. That's exciting. Uh, it does seem like it's going to be a very expensive console. So uh, Digital Foundry seems to indicate that it's going to be an expensive console for Microsoft to make. We will see how much they are going to pass that along to consumers. Um, I think the anticipation is a $499 price point, which is pretty steep. But they are really trying to make the Ferrari of video game consoles. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm a guy that wants everything to be pushed to the max. I'm excited for high performance from my games. And honestly, the most exciting bit of news coming out from, from this reveal is that every single Xbox One game already out will have performance upgrades for 
Project Scorpio. So third party, first party, every single game that you can play on Xbox One now, you'll be able to play on Xbox One when it's upgraded to Project Scorpio if you invest, uh, including every single backwards compatible Xbox 360 game that's currently available on Xbox One. So every single game. There's no, you know compatibility chart, whatever, every single game is going to work, uh, which is pretty impressive because it's a complete redesign of the hardware. It's a complete redesign of the cores, of the of the processing unit. So this is probably going to be, have been a lot of work for Microsoft to pull off. But they are promising every single game will work. Not only that, every single game will have performance upgrades. Um, so PlayStation 4 Pro, when it was released, some games... You, you saw, you know, higher resolutions, better, you know, better graphical performance, and some didn't. And recently there was a patch that included boost mode that, you know, provided some some upgrades for uh, every single game. But your results may vary, right? It, was, it wasn't particularly impressive. It sounds like with Project Scorpio, that performance upgrade is going to be much more significant. You'll see faster loading times. You'll see higher resolutions. Games that have dynamic resolutions, like, for example, Halo 5, will be at 4K resolutions natively. I think that stuff, for somebody that's interested in upgrading, and yes, this is for a premium customer. This is for a customer that has the money to spend on an upgrade to a console, that kind of thing is really exciting. And then if Microsoft backs that up at E3 with actually big game announcements, exclusives to this Project Scorpio, games that are really showing off the power of the system, I think that could be a compelling thing. It's still going to be expensive. It's still going to be for a niche of a niche. But I'm pretty excited about what we could see. When Mass Effect Andromeda released just a couple of weeks ago, it was lambasted for some technical issues and a lot of stuff that seemed to be, um, quite frankly, pretty half-assed. Uh, facial animations that seemed wooden and stiff and strange, uh, lots of glitches, and every system in the game, at least from my perspective, as somebody that put a heck of a lot of hours into it, uh, seemed unfinished. Now we're getting word via the BioWare blog that there will be uh, a whole bunch of patches coming forward that will address a lot of these issues, including one coming very, very soon. Uh, they're going to be improving the facial animations. They're going, to be, uh, they're going to be updating a lot of the romance options in the game to allow more same-sex romances uh, between male characters. A lot of the things that are getting criticized online, a lot of things that people have been asking for, it sounds like, Bioware is going to add into the game. There was a blistering commentary on Polygon.com from Ben Kuchera yesterday uh, accusing the game of being basically an early access title, like you would find on Steam. Early access, I think, has been a pretty uh, popular and well-embraced feature of Steam where you can start paying for a game early and be part of its development, influence the designers as they change and uh, and evolve things in the game. And there's been a lot of success stories there. Uh, a lot of games that have started out in beta and have been in beta for a long time. But those games are clearly labeled, and usually their prices indicate that you are jumping on an unfinished product and you are being given a discount for supporting the game during its development rather than buying it as a finished product. The idea here is that if... Bioware is going to continue to update the game and continue to change it, why would anybody want to put in the enormous number of hours required to play it now? 
is this a good thing? In, on one hand, you have uh, Bioware clearly listening to their fan base and hearing the complaints that uh, people are having about Mass Effect Andromeda and addressing them and, and putting resources into patching the game, patching out bits that people don't like and improving stuff that seems rough. But why should I pay $60 for what I thought was a finished product if it's going to continue to be in development. And I think this points to the idea that games have become a completely different beast than they once were. Even on consoles, even uh, console games that we used to think of as being finished and QA tested and approved by the platform manufacturer as a finished, done deal, now uh, that is not the case. And even games that are marketed and released as finished done games uh, products on uh, you know one specific release date that's not the case anymore i think uh, early access and really mmos is where this started uh, games that you had a, an ongoing monthly fee and were constantly changing and evolving over time i think that changed gamers mindsets about what they expected from games and we started thinking of things as uh, just a blueprint that can be altered and changed as things get added. And and these games, you know, you look at uh, an, an MMO like World of Warcraft, which is virtually indistinguishable from what it was when it when it first released. I mean, it, it has the bones of the, of, of the same world, but the mechanics are all wildly different. And in a lot of, in a large sense, this is a good thing in games. This is a this is a way to keep games vital and vibrant and fun, and. Uh, it, it, it rewards your investment into an ecosystem because games are changing and improving over time. And it's great that Bioware seems to be embracing their audience's requests and, and acknowledging the, the, uh, the things that need to be changed. But, but I can't help but feel that the people that rushed out and bought Mass Effect Andromeda on launch day are getting the short end of the stick. You're, there's very few people that are going to wait the the months that it's going to take for all these patches to come out. And even if, if they don't, they're playing a, a version of the game that Bioware themselves acknowledges as being substandard. It needs improvement. So why is this game out? Why has it been released? Why not just say it's an early access title? Is this something we want? Do we want games to evolve when they're not online multiplayer experiences? When they are finished single-player campaign games, do we want them to change? Do we want them to be improved over time? Or does this feel like a swindle? We'll start today off with a question. This comes from Alex, who wants to know why I haven't been talking about Persona 5. Hey Jeff, this is Alex from Brazil. Uh, I noticed that you didn't mention this week's big release on your station. What are your thoughts on Persona 5? I just got through the first dungeon and I'm really loving it. It's such a stylish game, I think the most stylish game I've ever played. And the setting modern day Japan and modern music and everything is just so different. I'm really, really enjoying it. And I'm not even that big an anime fan or anything. I, I was afraid it wouldn't be my, for my taste, but I'm adoring this game. So what are your thoughts about it? I know you really like more Western RPGs. Uh, is it just not your cup of tea? Are you playing it? Thanks for everything. Thanks, Alex. Great to hear from you. 
Yes, I am playing it, and yes, I definitely agree. It is one of the most stylish games I have ever played, ever. <laughs> it's, it is dripping with style. Uh, in fact, there may be too much style. I mean, at a certain point, cut the cutscenes cut between uh, hand-drawn anime to clicking through comic book style to fully voiced... 3D versions uh, to load screens every four seconds to cut to a different shot of a different thing to, I don't know, I, I really dig the iconography, I really dig the uh, the graphical design of everything, menus, text boxes, uh, the way characters' faces pop up at the bottom of the screen when they're talking, and then will, you know, smash cut into just their eyes for a second um, it is really, really cool and really, really stylish. I, you know, even the even the loading screens and loading moments. Like if you get on a train, the loading screen will be a bunch of hustling, bustling commuters standing shoulder to shoulder on the train. Or you know, if uh, it, you smash cut, there's a there's a flashback mechanic into the, how the narrative ex- is expressed. And if you're cutting back to the to the person telling the story in the flashback, it's gonna their outline that is the uh, overlay that's like the the star wipe <laughs> back to where they're talking. It's all so well thought out and so cool and so stylish. That is the first thing that uh, impressed me with the game. And yeah, there's nothing like it. And I think that alone is super cool. The way, you know, it's very much about disaffected teens. It's very much... Uh, a sort of emo aesthetic with with the you know the way the kids dress and their sort of superhero personas that they imagine themselves to be when they cross over into the alternate dimension. All that stuff is not exactly my aesthetic, not exactly my taste, but I certainly admire it and I certainly appreciate uh, that game. I'm I'm pretty much right where you are, Alex. I finished the first dungeon. It took me a long time to get into this game. It took me a while to come around to it. I've just now found found the fun, and I'm really, really digging the combat system. Once you get uh, a whole variety of personas that you can switch between and you're trying to uh, determine the weak points of each enemy, which attack they are weak to, so that you can chain together these one-mores. If you attack them with, a, with an attack that they are weak against... Uh, the game awards you one more. It's like uh, in basketball. It's like an and one. And one. You get a free throw. You get a free action. So you can uh, continue your attack on them and chain them together. So as you're walking around these dungeons and you initiate attacks with enemies, you sort of have to be stealthy and hide until they turn their backs. And then you can pounce on them, get an ambush attack. And then if you are if you manage to... Uh, you know, have an ambush allows you to be have initiative, have be the first attack, and then if you continue to one more of them, you can get to a situation where you can defeat the enemy before they ever even have a chance to attack you. And that's really the strategy of the of the game is finding ways to just completely chain attacks and decimate the opponent before that opponent can turn on you and attack you. Um, and that's really fun. That is really fun, and especially when you're able to knock down the opponent. If you uh, attack them effectively, you can knock them down, and then you have several options. You can do a massive full-party finishing attack that you know is very powerful, or you can try to talk to them. And I found that to be the most compelling part. 
that, something I had never played a Persona game before, so maybe this exists in the other Persona games, but the idea that I could initiate a conversation instead of uh, finishing them off and killing them, and in that conversation, I can win them over to my side so much that I can adopt their persona and bring new attacks into my arsenal. That's a really cool thing. And how those conversations go is pretty rad. It's almost like a conversation mini game. You're trying to figure out what that enemy character is looking for in terms of your responses so that they are won over to your side. And it isn't always obvious. You sort of have to take context clues and figure out the kinds of behaviors that they're into. Sometimes they want you to be obstinate and weird, and then like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. Sometimes they want you to be sensitive and caring, and, and they will respond to that. I thought that was really cool, and it made me you know, not want to kill people at the end. It made me want to try to reach out and talk to them. But having said that, and the entire last segment was all about the things I really like about the game at this point. I really, really do like a lot of it. I like it, how stylized and cool all of, all of the design is in the game. I love just the process of interfacing with that world. I do like, like you, Alex, I do really like the fact that we are set in the real world mostly, and we are set in contemporary modern day. I think it's, I think it's cool to have to negotiate your school life and you're interacting on cell phones and you're going to the Shibuya district in in Japan and that that is all of that stuff is really cool. I mean, I really really love the old DS game The World Ends With You, which uh, took that idea I think even further and made, you know, fashion and stylized modern day clothes into role-playing style armor with stat bonuses and stuff. I love that. I like the idea of overlaying video game stuff onto modern-day, real-world aesthetic. I think that's neat. I'm digging the combat system, as I said. So there's lots of positives to say. But that doesn't mean I don't have some big issues with the game. And again, I'm very early on. I'm still hooked. I'm still playing it. You'll hear me talk more about Persona 5 uh, as the days and weeks go by. Uh, I hadn't talked about it at this point because I just hadn't put in enough hours to really have an opinion. But I'll tell you how I feel so far because I think those first few hours of the game are not strong. <laughs> I think those first few hours of the game uh, really – it is such a prolonged tutorial and there is so much just sitting and reading the screen and listening to people and watching anime. And if you're super into the story, you're digging that. But I felt like it took so long to lay out the systems of the game. It took so long to actually get me to a point where I was making decisions. Interactive video games are all about decisions. Any, any game, uh, board games are the same way. It's all about interesting decisions that you're being presented with and trying to strategize the right mode of attack, the right way into the experience by making decisions. There are zero decisions in like the first two hours of this game. It's really just clicking through dialogue boxes, uh, maybe a couple of responses that you're, you're making you know, in, into dialogue choices. But it often felt like it didn't matter which of those dialogue choices I was making. They would result in, the, in, in either the exact same response or something very, very similar. I mean, obviously, I didn't ever see the other side of the, of the dialogue choice. But it really felt like they were the same response, just worded differently. It was either, you know, I don't care or dot, dot, dot or 
uh, what does it mean to you? Or, you know, it was, they, they were all very bland. And, and so it made my decision in how I was responding to those dialogue choices in the cutscenes to be completely uninteresting. And it isn't until you get to the dialogue sort of mini game when you fell an opponent that that stuff has any kind of impact or interest to me. And the story itself is, is really dark. It's really dark. I mean, we're, we're talking about child abuse. We're talking about, um, you know, teachers having forced, uh, romantic relationships with students. It's, it's, uh, it's dark stuff. And, you know, I didn't feel like the writing was strong enough to support that kind of heavy material. It all felt very on the nose. Everybody says exactly what they feel. If a person's a bad guy, they basically tell you they're a bad guy. If a person's, you know, has any feelings towards you, they just flat out state it. It's it's not show, not tell. It's tell. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's a, a translation issue or a cultural issue. It's just something that rubs me the wrong way. I would like more subtlety, more nuance in my writing in any medium, whether it's books or movies or TV shows or video games. And I don't think that video games have the luxury of being able to get away with, with you know, on-the-nose bad writing uh, anymore. There was a day when it didn't matter because a video game was was not really taken seriously in that way. But Persona 5 is really trying to do something serious. And... I felt at least those first two, three hours of the game, it just was so rough. But I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot more now. I appreciate you asking about the game. I'm going to be talking about it much more, as I said, in the coming days and weeks because I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it now. It just took a while. Hey, thanks again for sending in those call-ins. As you saw from today, I'm open to talking about what you guys want to talk about. So... I want this this show to be a two-way street. Let me know what games you're interested in hearing about. Let me know what questions you might have or what responses you have to the stuff I'm talking about. And we'll continue the conversation. It's easy to send a call in using the Anchor app, so please keep sending those in. Also, don't forget to favorite this station because that's how you don't miss a single day. We've got new content every single day, seven days a week. And uh, I'm heading out to... uh, Heroes of the Dorm tomorrow, so it should be fun. I'll have interviews with some of the Blizzard employees there, and we'll be talking about the cool competition among college students. So be back tomorrow and the next day for that. And don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata with two N's and one T. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, it's the weekend. Why not carve out a little bit of tabletop time? And in particular, talk about a game that would be of of interest to those of you who are video gamers and haven't really played a lot of tabletop time. I'm talking about Doom, the board game. Just a brand new edition was released from Fantasy Flight Games. I got my hands on it uh, a while back. I talked about it on my long-form show, DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. Uh, But I thought it'd be worth repeating. I've gotten some more games in on it, and uh, it's, it's a load of fun. It's a uh, a real dungeon crawler. This is a pure action game, but what else would you expect from an adaptation of Doom? That's what you're looking for, right? That's what Doom is, all action all the time, blasting demons, uh, playing as space marines, uh, grabbing weapons, running around, trying not to die as you kill as many demons as possible. That is the experience that is 
delivered on the tabletop version as well. And the cool thing is you can have up to four players play as individual space marines and one player play as all of the demons. So this is a one versus many type game. Think the video game Evolve. Uh, one player is playing as as all of the adversaries, and then however many players you have from one to four can play as the Space Marines trying to vanquish that that demon player. Uh, and there are some really, really cool mechanics in this game. There's a variable board and a scenarios booklet, so you can set up a whole variety of different maps based on these modular cardboard pieces that fit together in different ways. So uh, you have a whole whole range of different experiences right out of the box. Not every map is going to be the same, which is, you know, like the video game as well. And your Space Marines spawn in a certain area, and uh, they're trying – they have different objectives based on the scenario, but most of those objectives are blasting the demons to bits. So when they open a door and walk into a new area where some demons will spawn, the demon player then has a card that – gives an option as to which demons will spawn. So the player that's playing the demons always has a choice as to how they want to build their army. And usually it is an army. Usually it's a whole bunch of demons that that can spawn that have different abilities. So the players all have cards based on their initiative. Those cards are shuffled into a deck. You don't know who's going to go at what time. Usually these kinds of games, the one against many, uh, what happens is one of the Marines, for example, would go, then the enemy player would go, then one of the Marines would go, then one of the, then the enemy player. Usually these games are structured like that. But this game does something different. It, it has this deck of initiative cards, so you don't really know who's going to go when, and it's shuffled every every round. So the demon player could go last, it could go first, there could be multiple Marines that go back-to-back. It's unpredictable, and I like that about it. I thought that was a, a really interesting way to flip things on their heads. And the game does a really good job of trying to convey the experience of playing the newest version of Doom that came out just a couple of years ago, uh, the big Doom game that rebooted the franchise. In that game, you were rewarded for being aggressive. You were shooting at enemies and then they would blink a certain color and if you ran up and did an execution on them you would actually recover health and it would kill them instantly so the board game version has a mechanic that's very similar there are these executions that can happen if you knock an enemy down to a certain health point they're in the execution range and then if you use a movement action to advance to their space and land on the same space you kill them instantly and get cool stuff for it I thought that was really clever. It incentivized players to not turtle, to move forward, to be more aggressive, just like the video game did. And the the dice rolling uh, combat system is pretty clever. You have cards that have multiple functions. One of the functions that you have on your cards is to attack, and the other function is is they have certain defenses. So. Um, when someone attacks you, they roll a bunch of dice, and then you flip over a card, look at the little defense stat on that card to find out how much of that attack you have managed to block. So it's a there's a game of chance happening as well based on the deck that you are playing from. And the the demon player does that and the marine player does that as well. And it's very kinetic and fast paced. There's a lot of action and you're running through these corridors, you're killing stuff. Uh, the demon player is trying to kill the players a certain number of times because just like the video game, they respawn after death. 
I think this is a great one. If you're looking for a dungeon crawler, if you're a fan of Doom already, you're going to love the cool miniatures, you're going to love the aesthetic, and it's a lot of fun cooperatively and competitively. Next up, we've got a call-in. This comes from John, who wants to talk more about the upcoming Xbox Scorpio. Hey, Kanata. John Pop calling from Los Angeles, California. The Xbox Scorpio specs came out yesterday. And it looks like a sexy high-end PC, but a PC that's about a year old. Uh, is this the newest, latest, best, or is this too little, too late for Microsoft? Uh, i got to be honest, my, uh, my wallet's feeling a little uh, fatigued from all these incremental upgrades from uh, Sony and, and uh, Microsoft getting the Xbox One S and the PS Pro. Are you feeling jazzed about this thing, or are you uh, just, feel, just feeling sort of uh, meh? Hey, John, thanks for the call-in. Uh, I did talk about the Scorpio specs when they were announced on Thursday on this show, but it, it bears delving into a little deeper because we've, uh, we've learned a little more in the, in the days that have followed, and I've been thinking about it a little more. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that always wants the newest, latest, best. I'm always uh, into the Ferrari. I want that Ferrari. I want that Rolls-Royce of video game systems. I want somebody to be shooting for the moon. I respect Nintendo. I respect keeping the price point low on things. I respect uh, anybody that needs to buy a budget PC to play PC games. I get it. I, you know, of course, we want the biggest audience possible for video games. But boy, do I love it when we see the envelope pushed. We see the the graphical capabilities really bleeding edge on stuff. And I like the fact that it seems like Microsoft set out to make the most powerful console in the world, and they are succeeding. Now, here, is, here are the issues. The issues are, first of all, we are in this weird realm beyond generations, they say. So, you know, this is not the new Xbox. I'm kind of hoping, I'm kind of hoping that what they actually reveal at E3 is that it is a next-generation Xbox, and that there will be exclusives to this console, that there will be games that take advantage of this hardware beyond just outputting at a higher resolution. And I, I, there's a part of me that really thinks that might happen, just as a way to trump Sony a little bit. But, you know, even when you have this, this Rolls-Royce, this Ferrari, it's, it's kind of hampered by being tied to an older piece of hardware. If you're talking about it being Xbox One Plus, right? If it's just allowing Xbox One games to be played at higher resolutions like the PlayStation 4 Pro is doing, then you're limiting developers to create games that work on Xbox One. If you're saying there will be no games that don't work backwards compatible to Xbox One, then we're not really going to see this thing unleashed. It's like having a limiter on your Ferrari, right? And that takes the edge off of the excitement for me with regard to what this thing could do. Now, I, I rushed out and bought a PlayStation 4 Pro as soon as it was released. I'm excited. I do have a 4K television. I like seeing my games at high resolution. But to be quite honest with you, there hasn't been a ton of difference uh, in the PlayStation 4 Pro games. Now, I am seeing much more difference in PlayStation VR when I play it on PlayStation 4 Pro, which to me makes my purchase worthwhile. But, uh, you know, it isn't a huge difference. I'm hoping Microsoft, because their leap is, is even farther, will have a big difference. And I brought up those magic words, VR. 
I think we it's a foregone conclusion that Microsoft is going to have some sort of VR capabilities with this thing. It's got the it's got the horsepower to do it. VR is happening at Sony. They want to be neck and neck with that in the in the capabilities race. And they already have a buddy-buddy relationship with Oculus. I'm hoping what we do not see is Microsoft release their own proprietary headset. I would much rather them just embrace the Oculus and have it cross-compatible with this new Xbox Scorpio. That would be cool. As somebody who already owns an, uh, an Oculus headset, to be able to plug that in in the living room easily and quickly uh, or have somebody that, that would love to be in the Oculus and Oculus Touch ecosystem just be able to buy a quick console at, say, $500. I think that opens up VR to a whole group of people. We've already seen PlayStation users embrace PSVR uh, in a big way. I think it outsold Sony's expectations for its first year already. So there there is an appetite for it, and there's an appetite for the easy plug-and-play solution. I think the 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 kind of PC you need to build and the way you need to set it up is uh, an unnecessary impediment to people getting into the tech and understanding how cool it is. And we are already seeing with PlayStation VR that plug and play living room experience be embraced by people. So if Microsoft can pull that off and can leverage the, the pure tech specs of this thing to create that kind of experience, I'm excited I'm also excited to see what kind of games we're going to get on this thing. Are they going to be that much better looking? Are they going to have added capabilities? E3 is the place we're going to find that out. And until then, it's all speculation. I just got back from seeing Heroes of the Dorm in Las Vegas, Nevada, the big collegiate esports competition for Heroes of the Storm. Uh, It's the third year it's been going. It's been, man, I went to the first one. Really, really cool experience, and uh, it was cool to return to this the third year. Um, hopefully you saw my caffeine stream yesterday talking about my experience watching the show. I did conduct an interview with um, two of the guys who organized both uh, Blizzard HGC, their uh, Heroes Global Championship, and one of the guys who, who founded a, a collegiate esports company. This is that interview in full. Uh, I think these guys are really interesting, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Uh, so tell me your names and titles, please. Yeah, I am Sam Braithwaite, and I'm the esports franchise lead for Heroes of the Storm. Great. I am Adam Rosen. I am the co-founder of Tespa and lead for Heroes of the Storm. Very cool. This is uh, an amazing event already. I'm, I'm having a blast. I went to the first one, missed the second one, and here we are at the third year of Heroes of the Storm. Uh, what have you guys learned coming into year three that that has changed over the, the last three seasons of Heroes of the totally. Dorm. Totally. Uh, you know, it's really interesting looking back at the evolution of Heroes of the Dorm because I think we learn a lot every time we do it. One of the foundational things, though, that we, we keep expanding on is just the idea that Heroes of the Dorm, because it's a collegiate tournament, because it's pulling in these traditional rivalries that so many people can relate to, really serves as an entry point for newer fans and people who maybe aren't hardcore esports fans right now but love games. Um, there's this lower barrier of entry because they may know about LSU, right? Or they they may uh, have some sort of affiliation with Kentucky. So they come in um, and they get hooked because of that. So one of the things that we've spent a lot of effort trying to improve this year is really focusing on storylines that are driven by stats. 
making sure that out of all of these teams competing, we can uh, pull out what the really interesting stories are. Maybe uh, less than, maybe Kentucky, just no one believes in, right? Which is the case. No one believed Kentucky would make it to the finals. Um, maybe UT Arlington has the shortest game length, and that's driven by their, their hyper-aggressive style. Um, so what we've done is we have a team that's really sorting through all of, all of these stats, all of this data, trying to come up with what cool story elements are, and then building personas around these teams that even for fans who don't maybe know heroes yet or uh, follow the game really hardcore can jump in and fall in love because of that because there's some hook that they're relatable so that's one of the major things that we've uh, focused on this last year and then along with that all of the engagement opportunities it, it seems like blizzard has really understood that regionality is going to be a big part of getting people into esports and uh, we're seeing that with overwatch with the you know the leagues like attached to cities like yeah. professional sports teams um but even with hdc i think the regionality of it and having you know i'm i'm rooting for na people are rooting for yeah. eu the, can you speak to the the sort of regionality aspect of it and how that can be reinforced yeah, so I mean, when we specifically look at HGC, it's it's all about breaking it up so that you're able to root for and feel a part of a, a program or a league, right? And when you feel more associated to something, you're more likely to tune in. And one of the things that we really wanted to do with HGC and why we set it up the way we did is looking back at last year, we never saw the top team from North America and the top team from Europe ever play against each other in 2016 for Heroes of the Storm. And... You know, for, for, for me and for us, that, that, that's not acceptable. You know, like we think that that rivalry is what drives uh, the not only people watching, but how fun it is. And so we kind of developed the program to be able to uh, not only just push those regional rivalries, but actually like, propel them to greater heights with the Western Clash and the Eastern Clash and the programs that we've created. Uh, we think that regional rivalries are really important and, and finding and having teams to root for is important. And by not only doing that, but putting out a consistent schedule, we're seeing that fans are able to not only be attached to teams, but they tune in more and they watch more because they have that extra level of engagement. Yeah, there's a connection. Um, I'm curious about the idea of uh, collegiate esports in general, in the sense that I think there is a stigma still with video games that doesn't exist with more traditional sports. You know, yeah. even even a sport like lacrosse or something where nobody's ever going to turn pro in it. People are already going to be supportive of you going and competing on a yeah, you know, totally. during the week and missing classes or whatever. What what is the process of making you know tr transcending that speed bump and and figuring out how to how to bridge that gap with just you know normal people and parents? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've seen is that when students are playing games on campus, they're really playing games as a way to interact, right? A way to socialize with others. It's not necessarily they're going back and they're spending their day playing games alone in a dark corner, not interacting with the world. We find that it's actually that social interaction that drives it. And along with that, what we're seeing is these students are taking this thing that they're so passionate about and they're creating communities around it. So if we look at TESPA, for example, which is a network of collegiate organizations on 220 campuses in the U.S. and Canada, um, we're seeing all of these students come together and learn a whole ton of these really amazing life skills and leadership skills um, by hosting big events, by flying out players, by organizing communities. And we think that the more that we can highlight those things, uh, the more that we kind of get around the stigma. Um, 
Another thing that I'd add is that the group that we have playing games right now and the group that we have competing, um, they're really highly technical and they're really, really in tune with uh, science and technology, right? 70% of the students in the round of 64 are STEM majors. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really special thing because yeah. it, it indicates like, hey, you, you know, these aren't kids who are going out and wasting their time. These are people who are going to go out and be very influential in their careers and in society. And gaming is one of the tools that they use to stay connected with each other and to engage with each other. So I think every event like Heroes of the Dorm that we do, we chip away at that that stigma that is that is there, but I think we're very quickly seeing it start to disappear. And some schools are doing that too, right? We're seeing UCI as, as a great example of a school that's embracing esports as a, a, a um, um, scholarship worthy thing, yeah. right? Can you talk about that and that acceptance and, and are we going to see more of that across the country? Absolutely. So I think it's really special because not only is UCI, so most people when they talk about UCI, they talk about the scholarship teams, which I think is great and it's a huge step forward and something I think we will see more of. But they're also looking at esports as a comprehensive subject matter, right? They're actually um, doing research on esports. They're starting academic courses around esports. They're building arenas on their campus where students can come and play together. And I think I think when we look at that level, how they're embracing it from all of those different angles, it really speaks to, I think, the opportunity that they see within esports. It's not only a way of engaging their students, but also as a way of attracting more and uh, more talent from around the world. So um, are we going to see more of it? Yes. And we're already seeing it. Even this week, we've had um, another university come out, um, University of Utah, say, hey, we are going to release uh, a scholarship program for our students. So they've kicked that off. Um, looking at Heroes of the Dorm, we've actually had all of the heroic four universities publicly get behind their teams support them um promote them tweet about them awesome. um, so it's really cool to see that because we didn't have that three years ago we didn't have that two years ago so with every year that goes by we're seeing more and more of the public acceptance and not only acceptance but um really public embracing uh embracing of all of these teams at the college level so i think if we're looking five years out we're going to see most major universities with official esports programs supporting and scholarshiping students full-time that's pretty amazing um can we talk a little bit about uh, you know getting into? I feel like this event is one where you watch it and you think, "Hey, I could do that. I could get my buddies together and we could we could play and we can compete." The level of play is 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 akin to you know a uh, a professional sports level difference between the average player. But HGC, right? There is a, a way for a team to get and into professional level play yeah. just by merit, just by earning it, just because I and my friends got good enough. Yeah. You yeah. talk about that level of openness and, and what that means? Yeah, so when we were developing the HGC, we were really looking at, we wanted to solve an issue, which was we wanted to create a clear path to becoming a pro gamer. Like you said, it's, it's different to be really, really good at the game, and you could be one of the best people, but if there's not a, a system set up to where somebody that is good can, can find their way and feed into that, it's really difficult. And so Heroes the Dorm, and not only that, but our open division that we announced, which is uh, every week we have a series of online tournaments to where at the end of 14 weeks, the top teams get a face-off or a chance to get into the HGC. And one of the things that I think is super cool is that we, uh, Adam and I partnered up this year to really figure out how do we make the two programs work together? Um, if we look at last year, we had the uh, Korean Spring Championship, uh, the World Championship for Heroes Are Pro, and then the next weekend after was Heroes of the Dorm. And we found that it was really difficult for us to really 
pay uh, a lot of focus and attention to our events when they were so close to each other. And so one of the things that we did is nobody that participates in HGC can participate in Heroes of the Dorm and vice versa. We wanted to make, excuse me, we wanted to make it so that uh, somebody's not practicing on two different teams. We, we really want to make it so, like you said, the teams that are competing at Dorm are at that highest level and the teams competing in HGC are at the highest level. And uh, one of the cool biases that I have going into this tournament is I'm rooting for UTA because UTA is number one team right now on the open division leaderboard for HGC North America. They're very vocal that they want to be in the HGC and they want to compete in it. And I'm really, really proud to be a part of Heroes that we have the ecosystem to where somebody on a collegiate level can go compete, get recognized, win on a big stage, and then have that be a clear path to then getting introduced to the pro scene. Right. Like it, it, it's it's great that we're able to have that within our game. It's it, you know it's very similar to the NCAA moving into the pros, right? You're, you're you know you're a star here, and maybe that can translate into the pro level. It's very really cool. Heroes is a game that that moves very quickly, uh, is updated very fast, and changes often. Are there challenges in creating an event like this with a game that is constantly in flux like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we've, we've learned from our mistakes, and so one of the things that we were able to kick off this year is a tournament realm. And so if you actually look at Heroes of the Dorm right now, they're pe playing on a previous patch, the Lucio patch, because we wanted to make sure that they had the most competitive environment possible. We don't want to make it to where the teams that are facing off in the round of 16 and the round of 8 have to relearn a new character or balance right. patches or maybe uh, their trademark heroes got changed and now what do I do going into the heroic four mm -hmm. um, we very much recognize that yeah the game changes all the time and it's our job to make sure that we're providing the most competitively safe environment to where we can kind of get the most out of the players and make sure that they're putting on the best show possible and that they're uh, getting everything they need in order to succeed and we're seeing this this year you know here's the dorm was on ESPN for a while this year, uh, exclusive to Facebook Live. Yep. Can you explain that decision? What, what was that about? Is, is that a, an attempt to open yeah. it up to a wider audience, people that might not already be yeah. watching? One sports? of the things that we look at Heroes of the Dorm for is really, uh, I think Heroes of the Dorm is very well positioned to reach new audiences and to reach fans who maybe aren't aware of how much they would enjoy esports if they were exposed to it. So um, Heroes of the Dorm has always really been a pioneer in that front. Um, and this year we think that Facebook is offers tremendous reach, right? tremendous access to uh, fan bases that all over the world, globally, right? But also um, reaching these core audiences that already have shown their affiliations to various teams, right? So I think it's cool that within communities that pre-exist on Facebook, maybe an LSU fan page or a Kentucky fan page, that we can integrate our broadcast and create these really, really amplify those rivalries that we're creating by integrating so closely with Facebook. So um, it's, it's about reach and it's about engagement. Yeah, so like even going into that, when we look at Heroes of the Dorm, uh, you know, it's very much structured like the March Madness that you see. Sure. And one of the cool things about March Madness is that it brings in people who don't care about basketball at all, and it gets them to engage. And so, for me, I've never actually watched an NCAA basketball game during March Madness. If I go to a restaurant and it's on, great. But I filled out a bracket every single year. Right. And one of the things that we've been able to see with our partnership in Facebook is we have a tremendous growth in the amount of uh, engagement that we're seeing on our Pick'em Challenge, our bracket challenge because we are able to reach out and connect with those users that we weren't able to before. Right. And so it does open up a, a lot of doors that we didn't have previously. Gambling is fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's awesome. It's, it's uh, really, I think, 
so cool to have this, even more than professional esports events. This event, more than any of the others that I've seen, is so positive. It, there's a positive energy around it, and everybody's excited. They want, you know, it, it's younger people. I mean, pros yeah. are young too, but it's, yeah. you know, it, there's a great, wonderful, positive energy, and kudos to you guys for creating that. Yeah. Oh, I want to talk about this one because I'm excited. <laughs> All right, go for it. So I joined Blizzard a year ago. And I uh, immediately, my second day of work, I flew to Korea for the spring championship. And then the week after that, I was at Heroes of the Dorm. And the one thing I noticed is that at this world championship, the excitement levels of Dorm were just way above it in terms <laughs> of the people that were there and the audience. And as somebody that, um, in my previous roles, I've never really had to dive into collegiate esports. So I, I came into it with a very fresh perspective. And I, I've been racking my brain, uh, you know, after that. I was like, why Why was that such a special moment? Why did that leave me feeling something that I've never felt before? As somebody who's been to hundreds of esports tournaments in my entire career. And I think what I boiled it down to is the fact that for professional players, doing something like this is now a regular thing. You are used to going and competing on big stages. You're used to audiences. You're used to big prizes, right? You're showing up to work. Exactly. <coughs> yeah. But for these guys, this literally could be the only time in their entire life that they experience this. This could be their only time that their friends and family get to watch somebody do this. Yeah. And it makes it feel so like special and raw and emotional. There's tears and there's hugs and there's just people that look devastated that you don't you don't necessarily get that in esports anymore, you know? Like it's such a regular thing that nobody cries after winning or losing a game anymore. Right. Um, but you see that here because it matters so much more. And not only that, but there's this connection between uh, the players and their families because tuition is something that you, you get a debt on usually. Yeah. And it's like the ability to be able to tell your parents like, I got you, you know, yeah, like yeah. I, you're going to be okay. Like we're going to get through this together. Thank you for supporting me. I'm returning the favor. It creates so much dialogue that, uh, for me leaves this really special feeling that I've always been like, how do I emulate this? And I realized that I can't, that this is what makes collegiate esports special. Right. Perfect place to end it guys. Thank you very much. That was awesome. Really appreciate you talking cool. to me. Yeah. yeah. Thank Thanks. you. Great chatting with you. Welcome to Newest, Latest, Best, the place for the newest information, latest releases, and the very best that games have to offer. I'm Jeff Kanata, and today is Monday, April 3rd, 2017.